Hi, I'm Jake Parker, and this is my podcast, Beyond Fit. My goal is to help you live a happier and healthier life by providing actionable knowledge and advice about a wide range of health and fitness topics, as well as self-improvement. If you want to find out more about me, visit my website, jake-parker.com. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi guys, this podcast is called Should You Limit It? So the idea for this podcast came from thinking about a few different substances that I hear people talk about a lot, I get questioned about a lot, or just seem to be at the front of mind for many people, whether in the health and fitness context or not. So the three substances I'm going to go over today are number one, creatine, number two, sodium, and number three, caffeine. And then in addition, I actually wanted to throw in carbs as well. So starting off, getting right into it, creatine is one of the substances I like to talk about with people the most because I feel like it is underutilized and something that should be being taken by almost everyone, regardless of if you're highly active, lifting weights, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I really think they should be taken by everyone for a number of reasons, but the main reasons are that it has been proven to increase not only first and foremost muscle and strength, which is the most tangible and most noted benefit of it, And it does this by increasing the water content of muscle cells, which will influence muscle growth and help you attain more muscle mass. And this is not only useful for people who are obviously going to benefit from it, like people that are weightlifting, people that are bodybuilding, powerlifting, et cetera, but adding more muscle mass with a supplement like creatine that is natural, that's naturally found in the body. uh, Another note that I wanted to get to here. So I'll just go ahead and give my little spiel on that. So yes, creatine is natural. I know I get questioned a lot. Like, oh, is this, you know, like some sort of foreign substance to my body? Is my body going to be able to handle this? You know, is it, is it natural, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, creatine is natural. Your body naturally has creatine stores. Supplementing is just going to up those natural stores. And in addition, if you want further evidence that it's natural, creatine is found in foods like red meat, and fish. There's about two grams of creatine in a pound of red meat and about four grams of creatine in a pound of tuna or salmon. So the reason we supplement is you want to get those levels up, uh, the recommended doses, three to five grams a day. And that's really going to be almost impossible to do by way of your diet. As you can see, like you'd have to be eating over a pound of meat a day, which is not likely for most people or necessary. So Yes, creatine is natural. It's naturally found in your body. It's naturally found in other foods. And supplementing just uh, allows us to up those natural stores, which is going to be helpful for a number of reasons. I mentioned the increase in strength and muscle mass. We want to increase muscle mass no matter who we are, because that's going to help us with our longevity and overall health. Notably, I said the word longevity, and it's interesting because it's something that that I've heard a lot about. I listened to a lot of podcasts and read up a lot about Uh, And just the fact that when you view it from the the aspect of you want to maintain muscle into your old age so that you can still uh, maintain your independence and do things that are going to require some strength, some muscle, you know, helping yourself around the house, helping yourself with running errands, et cetera, stuff we don't really think about now. You know, I'm I'm, I'm guessing that most people who listen to this are not in their old age or not uh, elderly people. 
but you want to think about, you know, the long-term implications of your health and what it's going to be like when you're older, how to increase your longevity. That's a big reason why I continue to lift weights hard and do yoga and work on my mental clarity and mindset because I want to be useful into my old age. And this is sort of going into a different wormhole here, but I think it's important to note that you don't just want to live a long time, but you want to live vitally and healthily for a long time. And so increasing and maintaining muscle mass into your old age is going to be a huge benefit of that. So like I said, anyone can benefit from creatine. I want to emphasize that whether you are, you know, a very serious bodybuilder or whether you're just someone who wants, who wants to go to the gym a few weeks, sorry, a few days a week, get in better shape, or, you know, even if you're someone who is not into working out, I think that for many reasons you should exercise in some form, but creatine can benefit everyone. And what I wanted to also include in here was that it has been shown to increase your cognition, which is just the functioning of your brain, your, your mental capacity and brain power, and help fight against neurodegenerative disease, which uh, includes things like Alzheimer's, diseases of, of, the, of the brain, of the mind. And it can also increase your mood as well. It's shown to positively increase people's mood. So a few more things I wanted to go over with creatine. Um, like I said, it's repeatedly been proven to be safe. Some myths that have been debunked that you may have heard before. It's not bad for your kidneys. It's not going to make you dehydrated. Um, when creatine first came out, I don't know, maybe it was 10 to 20 years ago. I could be getting that wrong. It could have been longer. Um, but when it first came out in supplement form, it was not as advanced as it is now. It had not been worked on as much. And so there, there was some side effects where people were holding in water. Nothing major, nothing serious. But as you know, research has come along and supplementation has gotten better and more effective, that is not the case anymore. So like I said, creatine is just naturally upping your stores that you have in your body already. It's not a foreign substance. It's, it's safe. It's not going to cause your body to do any extra unnecessary work or be harmful in any way. And that being said, a lot of times you might hear that you should cycle creatine. This is also not necessary. Just sticking to that three to five grams a day, like I said, uh, that's the recommended dosage. So if you're doing that, I literally do that almost every single day. You know, sometimes I may forget or sometimes I may be away from my, from my stash of creatine, but almost every day I'll take three to five grams of creatine. It's just one of those things that I include just like anything else I take on a daily basis. And then last note, it is important to know that it uh, is not detrimental to skip a day or a few days or, you know, even a week, because when you build up your natural creatine stores, they do stay elevated for a long time. And so it's not completely necessary that you do it every day, but uh, just based on the fact that it's not going to be harmful to do it every day. And it's a good way to remember and to consistently keep your stores up. You should do that. And that's the story with creatine. Okay. So next on the list is salt. So to quickly summarize my thoughts here, I would just say that for the vast majority of people, you do not need to worry about how much salt you're eating, about limiting it, about you know getting too much, about it being unhealthy, et cetera, et cetera. You don't need to worry about that. Some reasons for that. The origin of the thinking that salt is unhealthy, thinking that it's bad for us, uh, dates back to a study in the early 1900s where it was found that uh, people had poor health outcomes that had higher salt intakes in their diet. And even today, we may see that people 
have poor health outcomes when they have a higher amount of sodium of salt in their diet. Okay, so I just said that you shouldn't worry about it. So, so what is all this? What does this mean? So here, what's taking place is a classic example of causation not equaling correlation. You may have heard this before, you may be familiar with the terminology, but when I say that causation doesn't equal correlation, it means that just because people had a higher salt intake, sodium content in their diet, doesn't necessarily mean, and were unhealthy, doesn't necessarily mean that that is what caused it. So essentially, people that had and have these higher sodium diets often tend to be doing things such as overeating, you know, eating foods that we know are not healthy, not eating enough fruits and vegetables and lean proteins and things like that. Perhaps they're smoking or drinking too much. There's just a lot of other factors that are at play here. And salt just happens to be one of the things that is also highly consumed, but not the culprit here in the poor health outcomes. So to make it more visceral, I know that I've talked about causation I've talked about causation and correlation before, and there's some really funny causation correlation examples out there that show that sometimes uh, these two factors, such as in this case, sodium intake, salt intake, and poor health outcomes might have nothing to do with each other. Like for example, there's a correlation out there that the number of people who drown by falling into a pool correlates with the films that Nicolas Cage appeared in. So that just shows that sometimes these examples are funny and are just completely by chance. Um, and just wanted to add to that point that just because these people had these poor health outcomes doesn't mean that it was a result of their salt intake. It was probably because they were having high salt intake with uh, too much food, not the right kinds of foods, et cetera, et cetera, other lifestyle choices, like I mentioned. So beyond that, salt is actually a crucial mineral called an electrolyte, which I'm sure for, we're all familiar with. And we need electrolytes. We need sodium in our diet. Like I said, it's a vital mineral. It's something that we need. So you may be surprised to know that too little sodium can cause things such as increased levels of LDL or bad cholesterol, higher levels of insulin resistance, and type 2 diabetes. Now, this is on the reverse end of the spectrum where no one probably has to be worried about eating too little sodium, but it just goes to show that sodium isn't something to be demonized. It's something that we need, uh, just like many other vital minerals and nutrients in our body. So I really think it's harmful, and I often try to educate and explain on why sodium is perfectly fine to have in our diet and doesn't need to be limited, because I know that that's sort of the prevailing wisdom out here. If you look at things as black and white, I know that I used to definitely be this way. I'd look at nutrition rules as black and white. So I'd see, oh, salt. Oh, I think that salt is unhealthy. I've heard that salt's unhealthy. So if I eat less, I'm more healthy. No, not the case. Again, it's that correlation causation. People with the highest sodium intake are eating a lot of processed foods, prepackaged foods, foods from restaurants, fast food, stuff like that. And so the fact that their sodium intake is high because of this stuff is not what we're worried about. We, we'd be worried about limiting those processed foods and getting less fast food, et cetera, in the diet. And of course, you're going to have more poor health outcomes if this is how you eat. But it's not because those foods are high in salt. It's because they don't include many nutrients. They're very calorically dense. 
So it really does you a lot to think about why we have these notions, why we have these rules. So the bottom line is don't worry about your sodium intake. Just try to eat a healthy overall diet. And like I said, if you're eating a lot of processed, prepackaged, uh, fast foods, restaurant foods, stuff like that, you're going to have a high sodium intake, but that's not what you need to be worried about is, is reducing your sodium. I think it's always funny when you see these foods that are reduced sodium, low sodium. That's not what matters because a lot of these times these are prepackaged foods that have a high sodium content innately. So rather than getting the low sodium version of the prepackaged food, just opt for a different food, you know, looking at your diet as a whole and really trying to make macro big level lifestyle changes are going to make all the difference. Not such things as looking at your salt intake and eating a little bit less sodium every day, stuff like that. That's crazy. That's nonsense. So do not worry about your sodium intake. Worry about getting quality nutrition on a daily basis. I talk about this a lot. It's whole natural foods. It's foods you would find in the woods. It's foods that are most like their natural form. We know we need to eat these foods, fruits, vegetables for carbs, it's oatmeal, it's potatoes, you know, stuff like that, eating lean proteins. And you don't have to be perfect, but just realize that it's not going to get you anywhere looking at these micro things. A lot of times these micro things that we think are helping, like reducing sodium, aren't even necessary. And we don't even realize the flip side that sodium, like I said, is a natural uh, mineral that we need in our diets. So it does, a, it does you a lot of good to look at these preconceptions we have about nutrition and why we think this way and what's really impactful and thinking about the correlation causation factor that I mentioned. Caffeine. This one, I believe, is a little more nuanced. Some base level stuff about caffeine is probably the most visceral component of the things I've talked about in the fact that when we drink caffeine or when we have caffeine, we, we feel the effect in our body. It does increase your mental capacity. It does improve your mood. It does stimulate your central nervous system. That's why a lot of us like to have it before working out and it's in pre-workouts and stuff like that. And so caffeine has a lot of benefits. Like I said, it, it, it will help you think better. We know that it helps us wake up in the morning. A lot of people like me really enjoy the morning cup of coffee. But the thing about caffeine is it's also really easy to get adjusted to and get to feeling like you need more and more just to feel normal or that you need more and more to feel those effects or that you can't feel the effects from the same amount, et cetera, et cetera. So with caffeine, I go back to a phrase that I've heard in a lot of different contexts about many things in that it's a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. So if you get hooked on caffeine and you feel like you need it to make it through the day, that's not a positive thing. You're not using it in the way that it's a supplement and an added benefit to occasionally use in your life. And this is, I think, where a lot of people are. And I know I've been there before. And it's really useful to try to take a step back and realize if you do find yourself dependent on caffeine. So myself personally, um, I try to combat this by taking one day a week when I don't have any caffeine so that I remind myself I can function without it. I can be perfectly fine without it. I don't need it. But oftentimes I do like to have a couple cups of coffee in the morning. Sometimes that's all the caffeine intake I have. I might have an energy drink like once a week. Uh, I might take a pre-workout supplement with caffeine once or twice a week. But I usually try to limit my caffeine intake to those two, maybe three at the most cups of coffee in the morning. And importantly, I try to not have caffeine within like six-ish to seven hours before bed. So if I'm going to bed at 10, I will try not to have any caffeine after three o'clock in the afternoon because that can cause you to stay awake 
you know, tossing and turning longer than you intend to have a hard time falling asleep. And interestingly enough, even if you do fall right asleep, if you still have some caffeine in your system, it's going to make it tougher for you to get into that deep sleep and or stay asleep. So be mindful that even if you don't feel like you have a hard time falling asleep, you still want to limit that caffeine intake because of this reason. Another thing I mentioned there, energy drinks, obviously things like bangs and monsters, rock stars, all these really high caffeine energy drinks have become very popular lately. And I think it's interesting because I think it's really a sign of the times. And I think that it really shows just how dependent as a society we've become on substances to get us through our days, to get us through, you know, work, working out, stuff like that. I think it's so important to note that you want to not be reliant on any substances. I don't think it's good for your mental well-being. I don't think it's good to rely on it physically and physiologically. And beyond just the fact that the long-term implication could be that you are eventually going to run into problems such as high blood pressure and heart health in the long term. But really, I think the most important part is to, like I keep saying, make sure you're not reliant on this stuff. Uh, Take time off of it. Do things that you enjoy doing on caffeine, off caffeine, such as getting your work done, you know, getting your workouts in. It's going to lead you to feeling a lot more stable and a lot more empowered. I think we just all can agree it's not a good thing to be hooked on a substance and feel like we need it. I want caffeine to be an added benefit to my life. I want it to help me and to give me a boost when I take it in and not just, you know, have it get me to the point where I feel normal or I feel the capacity to do whatever it is I want to do. So as far as dosage, um, for most people, it's anywhere from like 200 to 500 milligrams a day, 500 being really on the high end and not a number that you want to reach regularly, but just realizing that that is okay. Um, on, on some occasions, like for me, for my example, if I have my daily two cups of coffee in the morning, a cup of coffee is typically about hundred milligrams of caffeine. And keep in mind that a cup is right around eight to 10 ounces. And so if you're having that 16, 20 ounce cup of coffee in the morning, that's more like two or three cups. So just keeping that in mind. But if I have two cups of coffee in the morning at about, at about 200 milligrams of caffeine, and then I have a pre-workout supplement later in the day before I work out, well, that's going to put me at about that 500 milligram threshold where if I am on the low end and I only have my two cups of coffee, that's about 200 milligrams. That's at the low point of the threshold. And then keeping in mind that I am taking that day off every week. Um, As I have kind of been preaching about the not being reliant on caffeine and being able to take time away and time off of it, I have thought a lot about and want to experiment with a week or longer, maybe a couple weeks, maybe even so much as a month off. And so I will detail that later if I do decide to do that, if that's something I do in the near future. But really the thing I want to underline with all these things is it's not about the micro stuff. It's about what you do on a daily basis. It's about your diet, eating whole natural foods. It's about exercising regularly. No one substance is ever going to substitute for regular exercise for your physical well-being or for your mental well-being as well. I've realized so much lately that what you do physically and the exercise you do contributes so much to your mood, your feeling of well-being, your ability to think positively, your ability to think clearly and solve problems. And so make sure that you're you're focused on these long-term lifestyle choices before you look for these immediate things to cut out or these 
very micro things to concern yourself with. Importantly, as it relates to caffeine, as I also wanted to mention, you want to make sure that you're getting enough sleep every night and that your caffeine intake isn't just to counteract uh, lack of sleep or not enough sleep. Now, of course, we're all going to have those days where, you know, there's an extraneous circumstance where we're, we're drinking coffee because we're tired, we haven't gotten enough sleep. But on the macro level, overall, you don't want to be drinking caffeine every day because you're not sleeping enough at night. Um, you want to be sleeping seven to nine hours uh, within that range. It's pretty individualized where some people are going to feel better and feel like they need above eight hours. Some are going to feel okay closer to that seven hour range. And some people might need nine. Sometimes it feels really good to get nine. I've gotten close to like eight and a half, nine hours of sleep on a regular basis for months at a time. And I feel like I just feel so much more mentally clear. I perform so much better in the gym, et cetera, et cetera. So experiment with that and you know find your own set point but realize that sleep is not something that we have come to as humans compromise on we need regular sleep i've talked about this before in a podcast that i can link to uh, and what quality sleep looks like and how to get more quality sleep but you you need to be sleeping that seven to nine hours every night and make sure it's quality make sure it's not seven hours in your bed you know an hour on your phone make sure that you're getting into bed eight hours before bedtime if you can doing something relaxing at night, limiting artificial lights and stuff like that, sleeping in a cold, dark room. Some of this stuff sounds silly, but sleep is so, so, so important to our, our mental well-being, our mental clarity, our focus, and our physiology, our body composition, our health, our physical performance. There's a lot of things that I would cut out before cutting out and getting enough sleep because it is so important to so many different aspects. And I know you love that morning cup of coffee first thing when you get up or first thing you get to work, but experiment with yourself every once in a while by not having it. And you'll see that you're more resilient than you think you are. And you'll be proud of yourself for not feeling like you're reliant on anything. You're, you're building that internal fortitude and that, that mental strength and that strength and belief and confidence in yourself. Okay, so then carbs. Carbs, as we all know, are a pretty hot topic these days with all the low carb, no carb, keto, etc. dieting out there. I'm going to keep this one simple relative to how complex of a topic this can be. I believe that of the four substances mentioned, this is the most nuanced, but I'll kind of give my opinions and how I approach it here. I think that carbs tend to be more of a friend than a foe, not something to be actively avoided like many might have you think. In a nutshell, the reason that Low carb dieting is really popular um, in popular culture, etc. It's just based on the fact that you have less options that you can eat, and cutting carbs out of your diet is going to mean you're cutting calories out of your diet overall. What you should know is that the reduction of calories, the calorie deficit, is really what's driving you to lose weight. So you can do that in a number of ways. Low carb dieting is a way to do that. If you cut carbs out of your diet or if you reduce carbs in your diet, you will be eating less calories unless you really overcompensate by eating more of the other macronutrients, fats, and proteins. But more than likely, you're going to be putting yourself in a calorie deficit, which you could do many ways, like I said, by reducing portions, by trying other forms of diets, et cetera, et cetera. I know it's complicated when you kind of look for good information out there. It's hard to find, and you may find a lot of uh, people, products, et cetera, are pushing low-carb dieting because they have some sort of an agenda, uh, like they want to sell you something. And 
there's a lot of people I'm going to, I'm going to link to some of Mike Matthews articles because they're the articles I like to read a lot for good evidence, science-based things around exercise and nutrition. I like to really delve into that space heavily because I know that that's, that's where the good results are going to come from. And that's where the good quality information is. But most of the information out there, to be honest, is shit. I know, I know I used to blindly restrict carbs while cutting, but that's just not necessary. And in fact, there's two things I'd mention here as far as reasons why you don't want to go too low carb. So number one, when you eat carbohydrates, you're fueling the glycogen stores in your body. Glycogen is stored in the muscles and is broken down into glucose to fuel exercise. So if you were doing squats, the glycogen stored in your quadriceps, hamstrings, glutes, and calves would be broken down into glucose to fuel the exercise. So what this means is that you want to have enough carbohydrates in the body that your glycogen stores are properly fueled, properly topped off, as I like to say. And so where this point is at is around eating one to three grams of carbohydrates per pound of body weight a day. So at minimum for me, I weigh about 190 pounds or so. So at minimum, I'll round up to about 200 a day. And the most I would ever eat is 600. That's really a lot. Um, but that number is based around a high carb bodybuilding type diet used for a few reasons like a higher carb diet driving more insulin, which can be helpful for bodybuilders trying to get the most out of their muscle growth. It can potentially lead to a better hormone profile. Um, carbs can be protein sparing. They really help a lot with recovery. And in addition, if you look at it in a fat loss context, they can be more satiating than a lot of fats if you're eating quality filling carbs like potatoes and oatmeal. And they are also harder to convert into fat than fats are. So essentially, when you talk about the thermogenic component of food, and this is not something to put a lot of emphasis on, but it is interesting, definitely in like the last 5% of things you need to worry about. But we say that protein is the most thermogenic of foods. About 20 to 30% of the calories consumed from protein are burned via the thermogenic process, which is just the, the body processing the food. And then with carbs, it's about 5 to 10% of the calories. And then with fats, it's about only 3% of the calories. So foods, interestingly enough, do take more or less energy to be uh, processed by the body leading to some calorie burn. But like I said, none of these things are to be at the front of mind. I just wanted to point out why a high carb diet, a really, really high carb diet is sometimes used by people such as bodybuilders that have these specific goals and outcomes like uh, maximal muscle hypertrophy. What the average person needs to be concerned about is, like I said, just keeping your glycogen stores full. Usually that looks like about one carb per pound of body weight per day. For a good example here, or a good uh, little antidote to why you shouldn't go too low carb, if you've ever been on keto or know someone on keto, you've probably heard them complain about um, feeling really lethargic and not feeling they have any energy. Well, that's because their glycogen stores are depleted and your body's natural inclination is to use carbs as its preferred source of fuel. So when you go low carb, uh, it's really tough for your body to adjust to. And if you're too low carb for too long, it's gonna make you feel like shit and your workouts are really gonna suffer. So that's why I really recommend most people um, sticking to a moderate carb diet at least. 
unless you are going to go full-fledged into keto, which is a totally different story. But in such case, your body would be uh, running off of its fat stores if you did it correctly and didn't just do the blind ketogenic diet that most people do. But anyway, the second point I wanted to mention as far as carbohydrates is uh, if you were to prioritize them over fats in your diet, this might be helpful because fats can be easier to overeat and can be more calorically dense, definitely more calorically dense. So things such as nut butters, peanut butter, obviously everyone's favorite example. It's really easy to eat 500 calories of peanut butter, whereas it's not really easy to eat 500 calories of a potato or oatmeal. Um, same goes for like 80-20 beef or you know other high fat meats, stuff like that. Steaks are pretty easy to overeat. So, you know, just knowing yourself, knowing your body, being aware of the different components of food is really important here. And one last thing I wanted to mention uh, as far as carbs is some people may have an improved mood with carbs because it can lead to more dopamine. Um, dopamine and serotonin is released after high carb meals after you eat carbs. So that's another interesting component. But the most important thing is just to know your own body and know what's going to work for you. Couple last things I wanted to mention here. If you are an athlete, carbs have been time and time again showed to increase athletic performance, which is no surprise with what we've talked about as far as glycogen. Um, glycogen is especially needed if you're doing any sort of endurance exercise like uh, long runs, biking, swimming, etc. That's where it really gets important. Um, as far as choosing carbohydrates, like I sort of mentioned a couple times, you want to go for more fiber rich and slow digesting carbs. But again, not something you want to put too much uh, worry in, worry about. I used to really freak out about white carbs versus, you know, whole grain, wheat carbs. This is not uh, as important as some may lead you to believe or some people may think. Yeah, you do want to side on the wheat, uh, whole wheat. But if you have some white carbs here and there, it's really not going to be that big of a deal. When it comes down to it, you know, like white rice and brown rice and white pasta and wheat pasta have almost identical calories. It's not like one has way more calories than the other. It's just that the white carbs are a little bit easier to overeat. So don't worry about getting those in sometimes. It's not that big of a deal. But again, another thing where it's the last 5% of things you need to worry about, not part of the macro. Um, when do I ever go low carb? Sometimes I'll go, I'll prioritize low carb on vacations or when I'm, you know, away from home because there's more options that are higher fat, such as like at restaurants, you can get a cut of meat that has more fat. Uh, and stuff like that. And it's also just a good way for me to limit calories when I'm, when I'm not eating my normal routine. So this can work for me. And just knowing that my glycogen stores probably aren't going to completely drop off because before and after, and even during this period of low carb dieting, I'm going to be being mindful of that. So that's my take on carbs. Like I said, it's a nuanced topic, but I think that sums it up pretty well as far as our purposes here. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. If you have any questions, make sure you reach out to me and I will see you here for the next episode. Hey, it's Jake again. If this podcast provided you any value, I'd encourage you to share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. In addition, it'd really help me out a lot if you would go and subscribe or leave a review for my podcast. It's super easy. And in addition, if you have any questions or comments, I'd love for you to reach out to me by email or Instagram DM, which can both be found on my website. Thanks.